Our scripture lesson is taken first from John chapter 14, page 1242, 1242 in the Pew Bible, John 14, beginning at verse 15 and reading through the end of the chapter. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you all, being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandments, though I do, arise, let us go from here. And then just two verses from Revelation chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. This is addressed to the church of Laodicea. A Christian group, uh, neither hot nor cold, but lukewarm. And uh, he says to them, as many, uh, Revelation 3.19, page uh, 1410. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. And dine with him, and he with me. As far as the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing to it. In conjunction with it, I invite you to look at the Heidelberg Catechism found on page 885 in the back of the Trinity Psalter Hymnal, page 885, Lord's Day 29 in the second column, and continues on the next page. Lord's Day 29, page 885. Do the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? No, 
Just as the water of baptism is not changed into Christ's blood and does not itself wash away sins, but is simply a divine sign and assurance of these things, so too the holy bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ, in keeping with the nature and language of sacraments. What then does, why then does Christ call the, the bread his body and the cup his blood? or the new covenant in his blood. And Paul uses the words as a, uh, uses the words, a participation in Christ's body and blood. Christ has good reason for these words. He wants to teach us that just as the bread and wine nurse uh, the temporal life, so to his crucified body and poured out blood are true food and true drink of our souls for eternal life. But more important, he wants to assure us by this visible sign and pledge that we, through the Holy Spirit's work, share in his true body and blood as surely as our mouths receive these holy signs in his remembrance, and that all his sufferings and obedience are definitely ours, as if we personally had suffered and made satisfaction for our sins. Beloved of the Lord, we're confronted with a question does the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? And you might wonder, where does this question come from? What, what's this all about? Does the bread and wine become the real body and blood of Christ? The bread and wine of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, when I have a piece of bread in my hand and I break it when I pour out the cup, does, does something happen to that bread and wine that it becomes the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ? Are they changed? Well, the question comes from the Reformation, the time of the uh, Reformation in the uh, 16th uh, century or 15th century uh, or 1500s. Uh, that's the 16th century, I guess. Uh, it, it comes from the fact that uh, at that time, Christendom, the broader church, anyone who claims to be Christian, were were divided. They were divided about the nature of the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church, a big branch of Christendom at the time, believed that Christ was physically present. His real flesh and his real blood is present in the Lord's Supper. And the Protestant reformers, known as Lutherans, agreed with them that, yes, Christ is physically present in the Lord's Supper. And uh, the Calvinist branch of the Reformation, what we call the Reformed faith, uh, they said, no, he's not physically present. He is spiritually present to feed us and nourish us through the bread and the wine, but not physically present in the bread and the wine. Now, to understand what's going on here, let's look a little deeper into this. The Catholic Church teaches what is known as trans- Substantiation. That's a big word, and we don't use it a lot, but it shouldn't be too hard to, find, uh, to understand. It comes from two, uh, a combination of two words, transform and substance. Uh, even the little children know what transformers are. Uh, they are things that transform. They're in one shape, and then you unfold them, and they, maybe they look like a little car or a little truck, and then you unfold them, and they look like a... a a robotic human form, uh, some kind of uh, 
a robot uh, person. Uh, they transform. Well, there you have the, the transformation of shape. Uh, but in the Roman Catholic uh, vocabulary, they don't transform. It's not the shape that's transformed. It's the substance, transformed substance. Uh, as if uh, in a transformer, you it starts out as plastic and then changes to uh, aluminum or uh, the old alchemist dream of t- turning uh, uh, lead into gold. Well, uh, according to uh, Roman Catholic theology, there is a transformation of the substance so that the, the bread and the wine do change into the body and blood of Christ. The, the priest utters a, uh, a short sentence, this is my body, four words. And when he gets to the last syllable of the word body, uh, at the, the moment he pronounces the last syllable of the word body, at that moment, uh, a miracle happens. The bread is no longer bread. It's now the, blood, the flesh of Christ. And the wine is no longer wine. It is the blood of Christ. However, they also say that God knows that you would be, or Catholics would be, uh, grossed out by uh, eating a piece of flesh in their mouth, raw flesh, and drinking uh, uh, blood uh, that would have very bad flavor and uh, bad feel in the mouth. And so God allows the transformed substance to retain the properties of bread and wine. So it still looks like bread, still smells like bread, feels like bread, tastes like bread, uh, and the same with regard to the wine. This uh, 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 Now, Catholics do not all agree about how this happens. Uh, there are some who say it happens by a, a literal transformation of the substance. The molecules of bread and wine are just kind of twisted and around and become the molecules of flesh and blood. Retaining, however, the properties of bread and wine. There are others who say, no, there's a, 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 that at that moment of the miracle, the, the molecules of the bread and wine disappear. They're obliterated and instantaneously, instantaneously in their place appear new molecules, which are the flesh and blood of Christ. Now, they don't get too bent out of shape about that, but uh, really only the first deserves the name transubstantiation, but they call both transubstantiation. And uh, regardless, it requires belief in two miracles. Uh, there's really two miracles going on here. There's one, the substance is transformed, but then the second miracle is that uh, it retains the properties of bread and wine. That, too, has to be some kind of Miracle that it doesn't taste like flesh and blood, it tastes like bread and wine. That's, that's the Roman Catholic position, that transubstantiation, the substance is transformed. And so they believe that when you receive the elements, you're receiving the physical body and blood of Christ. Christ is physically present in the sacrament. Now Lutherans, uh, have something that's called consubstantiation from, uh, the uh, Latin con, which means with. With the substance, they say that when when the elements are uh, brought forth and prayed over and, and the liturgy is spoken, that uh, God's flesh appears in the bread. Uh, the bread is still bread. The bread is still there. 
but uh, in, under, around, and through, there are these tiny little molecules of Christ's flesh. And same with regard to the wine. The wine is still there, but with the wine, there are these little tiny molecules of Christ's blood. Uh, not so much that you can taste the flesh and the blood. It still tastes like bread and wine because the bread and wine is still there. So there's only one miracle, and that's the the manufacturing of Christ's body uh, to uh, fill the empty spaces between the molecules of the bread and the wine. Uh, I think Lutherans uh, prefer that they uh, they call this uh, sacramental union. Sacramental union, they don't like the term consubstantiation. But uh, the bottom line is that uh, both Catholics and Lutherans believe in a real physical presence of Christ's body in the, the uh, bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, such that even uh, an unworthy participant would, if receiving the elements, if an unbeliever comes and uh, is uh, receives the elements, they're receiving the real flesh of Christ, they're receiving the real blood of Christ, and uh, being blessed uh, by it. Well, this isn't what... Uh, the reformers uh, from the uh, Calvinistic branch of the Reformation taught. They said uh, Christ is present with us in the Lord's Supper, but he is present with us to bless us through the presence and the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, why would they say that? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, they say that because the sacraments are signs and seals of the gospel. That is, uh, the gospel is proclaimed with words, and there are promises in the gospel. And when you believe the gospel, you are blessed. You are fed and nourished unto, you're born again, and you are fed and nourished unto eternal life. And, and that is through the work of the Spirit. It's through uh, the work of God's Spirit working with the Word. And what the gospel promises regarding the presence of the Spirit, is what the sacrament also gives us with regard to the Spirit. In other words, the the sacrament doesn't bring us something additional to or something different from what the gospel brings us. I read to you from uh, John chapter 14, where Jesus promises uh, to send another, uh, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, well, the world cannot be received because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, and he will dwell in you. And uh, you ask, how it is that I will be with you? Well, if you abide in my word, my, my Father and I will come to you, and we will be in you. In us physically? No. Gospel promises that God the Father and God the Son will be in us through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And since that's what the gospel promises, then that's what the sacraments also bring to us, the spiritual presence of Christ. Uh, John 14 says, I I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you, and uh, I will be in you. Uh, Ask the Father, and he will give you another, even the Holy Spirit. You know, in in, uh, Revelation chapter 3, that Laodicean church isn't a strong church, 
But verse 19 tells us, as many as I love, I rebuke. He's rebuking the Laodicean church. Why? He's rebuking them because he loves them. And he's promising something to the church. Now, this is not uh, Romans, uh, Revelation 3.20 is often uh, used uh, on billboards in the Bible Belt of the South, uh, addressed to unbelievers, you know. Jesus is knocking on the door of the life, your life, uh, you unbeliever, and he, he wants to come into you. Well, that's not the context. The context is, I rebuke those who I love, the church. And I'm saying to the church, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. What's being promised there? Well, what's being promised there is the spiritual presence and power of Jesus Christ. It's, uh, you know, they, they're like David when he, he sinned with Bathsheba. We, we read in his psalm of repentance, one of them, uh, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He hadn't lost his salvation, but he had lost the joy of it because uh, God uh, was frowning. God had sort of withdrawn his presence. And, and that's what's happened to Laodicea. God, God hasn't, they haven't lost their salvation, but they've lost the joy of their salvation because God's sort of on the outside right now. He's not in the midst of them uh, the way he had promised to be in the midst of his church. And, He's saying, now, if you will repent, then, uh, as, as David did, and I restored to him the joy of his salvation. I came, and, and the fullness of my spirit shone in his life again. I smiled on him again. You know, one of the biggest things I was like about wearing a mask is I, I can't smile at people, and I can't see other people's smiles. Well, God's smile is so important in our lives. And that's what he's promising here. If, if you will repent, I will smile on you, and, and you'll know the joy of my presence. And uh, so he, uh, he he promises that to the church. Well, that's what that's what the gospel proclaims, and uh, therefore we shouldn't think that the holy that the Lord's Supper is going to bring us anything different than what the gospel promises: the spiritual presence of Christ. Now, the Spirit is present uh, in a special way in the in the Lord's Supper. It's not just that. That the Spirit is always there, you know, that there's one branch of the Reformation, the Radical Reformation, the, uh, the Anabaptists that felt that uh, the, the Lord's Supper is just a memorial, it's just a remembrance. Uh, there's, uh, the Spirit is with us, but the Spirit is with us all the time. And so there's nothing special about the, the presence of the Spirit in the Lord's Supper. But we say, no, there is something special about the presence, that, that when we... When we reach out for those elements and we take them to ourselves and we consume them, in that very act, the Spirit is blessing us and feeding us and nourishing us and uh, making us uh, stronger Christians uh, as we partake in faith. And so uh, uh, he does that not by the physical presence of Christ, but by the spiritual presence of Christ. Another reason why we reject it is not just because the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of the gospel and doesn't bring us anything other than what the gospel brings us or promises us, but also it uh, it it changes the nature of Christ. Uh, it assumes that Christ is able to be physically present uh, in all these uh, places where the sacrament is uh, being celebrated. We touched on this once before. 
with regard to uh, Lutheranism. Uh, there are many fine Christian people in the Lutheran Church. I, I don't mean to uh, besmirch uh, our brothers and sisters who are true believers in the Lutheran Church, but nevertheless, uh, in this matter, they believe that when Christ was physically taken to heaven, then his body underwent a change. <laughs> his body was deified so that his physical body, not just his spirit, but his physical body could be everywhere present because it was it was made entirely different. You know, a, a physical body is in one place at a time. And uh, but uh, uh, Christ's body, supposedly, according to Lutheran th- uh, theology, has been deified and therefore uh, can be everywhere present. And that's how part of his body and part of his flesh can be with the bread and the wine and the sacrament. But if that's the case, as we indicated uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, Christ is no longer like us. And one of the great comforts is that as he has become, so we will become. Uh, as he has been raised and made incorruptible, but still with a physical body, so uh, we will become like that. He's our brother. Uh, he he condescended to become like us. And he did it forever. I mean, he took our form, he took our flesh and blood, and he's keeping it. Now, if he didn't keep it, that would make us also sort of despisers of human flesh and think that the flesh is a hindrance, and we too would want to be deified and become uh, ethereal and so forth, and perhaps everywhere present. But no, he affirms by continuing to be a physical human being like us, he affirms the dignity of his original creation of Adam and Eve as flesh and blood human beings. This is a glorious thing that he has done, creating us in his image as flesh and blood. And Christ has taken that and he will keep it forever and uh, honors us in so doing. And uh, we rejoice that one day, Uh, our bodies will be raised and made like his glorious body. Not deified, but certainly made incorruptible. And uh, so uh, we we affirm instead of Christ's physical presence, we affirm his spiritual presence. Now, the Catechism also asks the question, why then does Christ call the bread his body and the wine his blood? And we might add, why does Christ, uh, the Bible referred to the water of baptism as something that washes away our sins. You see that when Ananias said to uh, Paul of Tarsus, about to become Paul the apostle, uh, stand up and, and be baptized and wash away your sins, as if the water of baptism is that which washes away sins. Well, what we have in the scriptures is what our catechism calls Sacramental language. At the end of question 78, it says uh, that the bread of the Lord's Supper does not become the body of Christ itself, even though it is called the body of Christ in keeping with the nature and language of the sacraments. There's language of the sacraments or sacramental language. Uh, I hope you won't be offended if I... uh, Quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's found in the back of this book uh, on page 936. They also talk about sacramental language. And they say this in the Westminster Confession of Faith, Article 27. There is in every sacrament a spiritual relation 
between the sign and the thing signified, such that the name and the effect of the one are attributed to the other. The name and the effect of one are attributed to the other. That is, the name and the effect of spiritual cleansing is attributed to water. And the the name, body, and blood of Christ and its nourishing effect is attributed to the bread and wine. Now, this has led to some confusion, of course, in the history of Christianity, that the Bible, the phrase sacramental language is a theologian's term, but it's describing what the Bible does. The Bible does speak as if the the reality, the thing signified, the, the work of the spirits, is given to the symbol. Uh, The Bible does that. Christ takes a piece of bread and says, this is my body. He's he's giving to that piece of bread the the name and the effect of feeding on him spiritually uh, and benefiting from his broken body and shed blood. And Ananias speaks of the water as if it itself is washing away our sins. When the catechism says, no, it, it, the bread isn't his flesh and blood, and the water isn't one, the thing that washes away our sins, but the Bible speaks of it that way. Why does it speak it that way? Why, why do we have this kind of sacramental language in the Bible? Well, the, the catechism says there's two reasons. Number one, it, it teaches us. It teaches us that as water uh, washes uh, dirt from the body, so Christ's blood washes away our sins. It's a symbolism lesson. Look look at what water does and learn. Learn that that's what the blood of Christ does to you spiritually. He gives us a physical example, an analogy, and says they're analogous. They're, they're related to one another. As one washes, water washes the body, so the blood of Christ. He wants you to learn that. And he, he wants you to learn that as bread and wine nourish the physical body, Though the shed blood and broken body of Jesus Christ nourish you spiritually. Again, there's a relationship between the two. And by using this language, he's drawing these things together. But then the catechism says, not not only is he just teaching you, he's also assuring you. He's assuring you that as much as you have the one, you have the other. If, If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ then you can be sure that just as surely as you have been baptized, your sins have been washed away. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you love him and you partake of the bread and wine, you have been nourished spiritually. Now, in our history, we we struggle with this because we deal with a lot of presumption. We deal with a lot of presumption in reform circles and even beyond reform circles in, in Christian, Christianity in general. There's a lot of people who presume too much and in a very deadly and destructive way. You ask somebody if, are you a Christian? Well, I was baptized. I go to church. I, I made a profession of faith. I, I must be a Christian because uh, I go through all the motions that, that Christians do. I, I I get the the sacraments uh, from the minister or from the priest or whatever, so I I guess I am a Christian, you know. And there are some people who who look at their children and, uh, uh, you know, we we want 
so much for our children to be saved. We want our children to know the joy of sins forgiven. And and, and there are parents who, who, who say, well, my child must be saved. They were baptized. That That's a guarantee that that my child has been saved. And a child raised in that kind of environment will will say, you know, my parents think I'm saved because I'm baptized. I must be saved. And so it doesn't matter if I go out and get drunk this weekend or sleep with my girlfriend, uh, even though we're not married. And, and uh, I can do all sorts of things and uh, just presume that I'm saved because I've been baptized, because my parents wanted so badly to believe that I was a, a Christian because I was baptized. And so because we have this kind of presumption uh, in, in the Christian church, um, we're reluctant to utilize the sacramental language of Scripture to good effect. You know, there are sincere Christians who struggle to be assured that their sins are forgiven. They love Christ. And, and they believe that Christ died to save for sin, sinners, but they, they don't have a sense of personal assurance. And, and Martin Luther would say to them, remember your baptism. He would point to their baptism and say, look, you were baptized. But he'd say that to people who were humble believers. He wouldn't say that to presumptuous people who would just presume that they were Christian because they were baptized. But to those who were sincere in their faith, who were believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and I would say, if you want to know your sins are forgiven, remember your baptism. Don't presume. Believe. Believe that God has given you that. And you want to know that that he, he is nourishing and strengthening you? Then look at that bread and wine. He's given his body for you. He's given his blood for you. That too should assure you that your sins are forgiven. As, as truly as you have taken those things into yourself, you should believe that Christ is in you. Don't presume it. Believe it. That's why Christ has given us these sacraments. That's why we have sacramental language, why the, the name and the effect of the thing signified is uh, given to the symbol. So that when we have the symbol, believers, pious, humble believers may be assured that if they have the symbol, they have the reality it stands for. Don't presume that, but do believe it. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the sacraments that you have given the church, and we pray that we may not presume upon them, but that we might receive them in faith and be taught and assured by them that as much as uh, we have the, the symbol, Uh, Through faith, we have the reality that it represents. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.